Hi there, and welcome back to Fantasy for the Ages, the show where a father and son sit down and talk about fantasy literature. I'm the son in the equation, Zach. And that would make me the father, Jim. And when we say welcome back, we're assuming you're returning to our podcast. But if you are first-time listeners, go back and listen to the first 10. Yes, this episode probably will not make much sense if this is your first time hearing our voices. But we're thrilled to have you with us. Nevertheless, we want to thank everybody who has been listening to our podcast with a particular actual welcome to our first-time listeners. We know we keep picking up more and more people Mm -hmm. along the way. Today is a continuation of our journey through Robert Jordan's The Eye of the World, the first book of the Wheel of Time series. We are almost halfway through, I believe. You are correct. We do want to welcome all of you that are new And thank you for returning, those of you who have continued on with us. As I look at the numbers of people and where they're coming from, it it continues to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. We have truly lost Norway. Oh, no. Although I still stand by the possibility Norway has simply disappeared from the planet. I really hope that's not true. If you're from Norway, please... um... Contact us. We're worried. Since no one from Norway is listening, I don't think we'll hear anything. Oh. (laughs) Maybe someday we will hear from them again. However, our French listeners continue to skyrocket. Vive la France. It's fantastic. But we have some new people over the past week who have checked in. Yes, we have listeners now in Turkey, New Zealand, the land of the Lord of the Rings. So that one excites me. (laughs) Ireland and the Netherlands. Great to have all of you here. Welcome. We do want to give a special shout out also to the people who have found our Discord server. Absolutely. It's been great being able to really connect with some people and start having a little bit of discussion there. It's a nice growing group. We're still not very large there. Some people, when they listen to this episode, will go, what do you mean? There's like 300 people here because they'll be finding us a year from now. But right now, it's a small, tight-knit group, very friendly, very welcoming. So you are all welcome to join us. If you look in the show notes here, I have a link where you're invited to jump into our Discord network. We'll hope to see you on the server soon. So with those couple, I guess, announcements out of the way, how are you doing, Dad? I am doing great. I just got back from a week of vacation out at the Oregon coast. In February on the Oregon coast... You get some days of sun and some days of the Pacific storms pummeling you. And I wanted both, and I got both. So congratulations. Yeah, yeah, it was beautiful. How about you, Zach? What have you been up to? Well, I have been cooking for myself this past week. (laughs) Oh, that's an experience, eh? How's that ramen going for you? No, I I made a great stir fry. It was delicious, very healthy, which is weird for me. Wait, 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 wait. I cook good food for you most of the time. Very healthy. Yeah, but I only eat things you cook like one meal a day. The rest, it's um... it's a miracle if I have something that constitutes a meal. I like to snack. I've also just finished up with a uh, coursework for a CNA. Things are moving forward with that, and I'm really happy with where, career-wise, I'm starting to head. So am I. <laughs> Make a living. Stand on your own two feet. This is a good thing from a parent's perspective. That is true. (laughs) All right. We've got a good deal of content with the Eye of the World today to cover. So I think we should get started. What do you say? Let's do it. I see a lot of chapters there in your Mm -hmm, notes. mm -hmm. Let me begin by pointing out that the next few episodes, including this one, 
we'll jump around a bit. We ended chapter 20 with the company of travelers being scattered as they were fleeing from Shatterlugath. From this point, Robert Jordan, in the book, jumped around a bit, covering the various experiences of these core characters as they went their various ways. We've decided to put the related chapters together over the next four content episodes. We'll be focusing on what happened to each of the different groups. Reading it as a book, it's really nice getting able to jump between the few and never feeling like you were away from your favorite characters for too long. But when we're doing just an episode per, it's a lot easier for us to stay kind of in the same wheelhouse. It goes well with the vein of the future books in the series, too, where occasionally we'll like be, so what happened to that character? We don't even see him in the whole book. Uh, maybe they <laughs> broke a leg or something. So we're, we're kind of introducing them to that concept of this series. Today, we're going to begin with Perrin's story, skipping chapter 21, going into chapter 22, called A Path Chosen. We find Perrin sleeping under a pile of cedar branches. Having lost his horse and most of his supplies in the river Arenel, oh, no. he fell asleep, exhausted by the effort to get across. Do we know, does that horse live or die? We do not know. I'm thinking the glue factory got a donation. Nope, nope. I am choosing to believe it's got swept away like five miles and then ran away and, and found, found the itself. Mustangs, found a little filly, had a great time. Yeah, no, it had a great life. Okay, that is a distinct possibility. Put Zach down as fan of horses. I just don't want to see animals needless letting, needlessly getting killed off in this series, okay? No animals were wounded in the making of this book. No, no, they can be hurt. It just has to serve a purpose. All right. So, honestly, we have no idea what happened to the horse, okay? As well as all parents' supplies that were on the horse, they are gone. Yeah, that's not great. He's still got his axe. He wakes up. He's partly woken up because he fell asleep under the bush, and it's a cedar tree area. He's got all these prickly, you know, the cedar yeah, it doesn't prickly feel great. needles. Yeah, that's what wakes him up. And his clothes, they're still damp. He didn't have anything to make a fire with when well, he got out of the river. Don't do that. No. Just don't. Don't fall asleep in wet clothes? No, don't make a fire. So I said in the last episode, Lan was very on them. When you've got people chasing you, don't make a fire. Big signal that you should come here. I'm going to keep saying it every time it happens because people are stupid. Well, it wasn't even an option for him, though. He had nothing to make a fire with. He wakes up. He's now still damp. The first thing on his mind is, Ugh, this is horrible. I'm very uncomfortable. Then he's thinking, okay, so I got to do something to get warm, but oh man, I'm also hungry. I got to do something to get some food. Kind of looks at what he's got. I mean, he lost most of his supplies, mm -hmm. but he does still have, as you said, his axe. axe. He also has a sling, so he could, you know, perhaps get a squirrel or a rabbit with that. With that two rivers aim. But more importantly, he's missing Egwene, the one he went to the river with. She's gone. He recalls she wasn't a very strong swimmer, at least in comparison to himself. Mm -hmm. All his many years at the forge, as well as just personal leisure. So he, he figures she probably got swept a little further downstream. And if she made it across, hopefully she if, did. If he's being positive, he's sure she made it across. Parent and positive don't really go together in my mind. In this sense, he does not want to think about the possibility that she just got swept downriver with that horse at the glue factory. No, he doesn't want to. He refuses to. Obviously, when she made it across, <laughs> it was farther down, downriver. So he's going to head downriver trying to find her. Perrin travels several miles, carefully following the river, but moving from cover to cover. Why? Because there's still shadow spawn. 
There's not where he is. He got away from them across the river. And remember what you said about they don't fast like, moving water. They don't like to cross it. Right. But A, you could be seen. You could be tracked. B, there's still theoretically flying ones around. Yeah, what were those called them. again? Uh, Drakkar. Yeah. There's a, a good number of reasons to be cover to cover. And he doesn't. Giant mosquito suckers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's what I like to think of them as. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so he's he does not want to attract attention from Shadow Spawn. He assumes they're mostly on the other side of the river, but if they see him, you know, he's like dancing, going yeah, na 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 na. They might decide to come across, anyways. So he's gonna keep under cover. After a few miles, he does come across some horse prints, hoof tracks that are clearly marked with the horseshoe print of Master Luhan the blacksmith shop where he worked. So two river horse. It's like finding your watermark on an artwork that's just out there in the world yeah this has got to be a Gwen. he follows the horse prince and guess what he finds he finds a, a fire Gwen. yeah with a fire big smoke going into the air there's light there to he's just saying and she was a lot nothing, easier to find nothing wrong at all in fact she is far better shape there's no no attack nothing coming she at her She could have been found way easier perrin finds her and not just a Gwen. He also finds the Bella. most important character in the whole series. Yeah. Hi, Bella. Yeah, Bella. So she's warming herself. She's comfortable. And she's like, oh, Perrin. Welcomes him in, gets him warm, gives him some food. She's got food, man. Well, she's still got Bella. So she's still got lose the pack stuff. stuff. Right. They discuss, discuss, okay, what now? What do we do? We could wait here for Moraine or Lan. But the Trollocs might find them. The Trollocs might. might find the fire. They might. I'm bringing it back. Because you know fire. Yeah, you've said it. They could just head off on their own along the river further and make it to Whitebridge, that the had destination been the plan. they were going to, right? But so would probably the Shadow Spawn. The yeah, Fades the knew fades, they were going that Trollocs, way. That's where they, they knew where they were going. Okay. So Perrin finally suggests a different plan. Let's just go straight for Camelin. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. So let's not go to Whitebridge. Let's cut across country straight for where Camelin would be because they are so familiar with this territory and country. Surely nothing nah, could go nah, nah. wrong if they just strike out into the wilderness and forget the roads. Perrin starts drawing like this little would-be map in the mud, basically. <laughs> and he notes, he's like, I remember this kind of from a map I used to stare at. A few years ago. It was like as a kid and I used to love it. And I distinctly remember Master Alvir, Egwene's father and the mayor, looking at it once and saying... That's a really inaccurate map. But <laughs> if I believe that map, I think Camelid would be somewhere that direction. Which, actually, this begs a couple of questions. One, how the heck does Bran Alvere know that it's an ina inaccurate map? Someone told him. But you think he's just going to believe somebody's word? He's not a lemming. I don't know. Maybe Tam you know, told them. A lot of these characters may have backstories where they did once upon a time travel to Camelin. Well, I just they got out. It makes a lot of brings up a lot of questions when it's such a big deal that Tam left the two rivers, because no one leaves the two rivers. But people have knowledge that would only really be gained by being out of the two rivers. Does you Tam just be, go around telling everyone everything? You could be the next person who decides to write the backstory novel novellas. Of all these characters. I don't think I'd get sanctioned for that. I could write it as fanfic, but I can't get money off of it then. Ah, who needs money? Me. And so do we. And if you'd like to support us on our Patreon page, the link is at the bottom of the show notes. <laughs> uh, shameless plugging. Good job, Dad. You've got it. 
All right, so, hey, Egwene says, Perrin, that's a great idea. Let's just cut cross-country to Camelin. What could go wrong? A lot. Foreshadowing. Okay, so they leave the road. Because, you know, the Fades and Trollocs, they figure they're following the road. They think they know where they're going. Nope. Off we go. Takes us to chapter 23, which is called Wolf Brother. Remember that. Sees Perrin and Egwene traveling cross-country now. Mm Mm-hmm. Perrin had been surprised that Egwene so amenably allowed Perrin to establish the plan for traveling directly to Camelin. Unfortunately, she didn't stay so amenable. Nah. I mean, the challenges begin with Egwene's insistence yeah. that they will take turns on Bella. It seems the further they get from the immediate danger of Trollocs, the more Egwene slips back into Egwene, which makes sense. You're less in a panic tell me what to do and more a uh, no 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 i i got this i'll and, tell you what to do yeah i will tell you what to do parents like you know you just ride bella i got this let's go and she's like no there is no point in either of us being exhausted we will take turns riding on bella i picture bella who's looking at Perrin, going dude you're huge no talk oh. to the woman talk to her you don't need to ride me Bella's used to pulling a cart by herself the book describes it the first time Perrin gets on bella is like Ugh. <laughs> And the look in her eyes, I remember her being described that way. She's like, really, dude? Lay off the potatoes. He's not fat. (laughs) No, he's not, but he is a sturdy, big man. And Bella is not a large horse. She's not a war horse or anything like that. No, but she's strong. She's like, Egwene is nice. Perrin is, oh, oh, man. Okay, let's keep going now. Is it Egwene's turn yet? I also got the impression that Perrin was always kind of the one of the less accomplished writers and was more likely to be like squeezing a little too hard with his legs, especially with his strength. Mm. And it's not good for the horse. Egwene will have her way. So they're taking turns on Bella, despite Perrin's preference. They make camp at the end of the first day. And Egwene begins setting up for a fire. Perrin goes off hunting. He knows she can take care of the fire. Obviously, she had one the night before. Yeah. Gonna go try to catch a rabbit. He gets lucky and very quickly does catch a rabbit. Okay, let's cook this thing. And he finds Egwene. She's got the fire all set up, except nothing's burning. The wood's all set up, and she's just sitting there kneeling next to it with her eyes closed like she's, what, zen meditating. What is going on? He's like, um, you know, that won't start the fire. You maybe want to light it? Like, get your flint and steel? And then she says, I didn't have one. I used, well, she doesn't say magic, but she used magic. She used the one power, just like Moraine had taught her. He's like, you did what? Yeah, Perrin flips out. Yeah, because she's not trained. That's not safe for anyone. Yeah. So he says, don't ever do that again. You need to go and get training before you use the one power. And she's like, don't you tell me what to do. Perrin almost says even, don't even necessarily get training. Just stop messing with the one power. He seems very afraid of it. She refuses to consent to his desire that she not use the one power to make fires. But she does at least agree not to try again tonight. (laughs) Which I think, truthfully, has more to do with the fact that she feels kind of ashamed that she wasn't able to succeed after, like, half hour, 40 minutes of trying. So he makes a fire bow and gets the fire going. Have you ever made a fire by getting a couple sticks and scraping them together? Yeah. No. I've used flint and steel. I've done various other things. But just by the friction with wood or any of that kind of size. Now, technically, a fire bow is not precisely just like rubbing two sticks together 
it's making a contraption of wooden string to twist another stick into a log and that With twisting fr- makes friction the friction be, yeah. for fire yeah so it's a little different than just like rub 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 i like to think these fantasy novels though make this sound easier than it is i'll just get a fire bow and do it and boom no, that's still hard work. I do imagine people who maybe like the Two Rivers folk had more experience than you or I would have an easier time than you or I, but it's not easy. They do get the fire going. They cook the rabbit. It's very nice. Yay. They continue on day after day, working the same manner now. They're making what they consider good time. They're not running into any issues other than they're not finding any more rabbits. They're having to settle for wild tubers, young shoots, potatoes the, the odd mushroom they come across boil them mash them stick them in a stew yeah let's not start mixing up our novels Thank isn't that the whole point of this podcast yeah uh, yeah there's just the two of them and then their third companion would become hunger they are definitely getting pretty hungry as they, they travel you mean the fourth companion there's still bella oh sorry bella <laughs> i have insulted the creator well My and, mistake. and bella's got to eat too Yeah, but Bella could just eat the grass. There's plenty of grass they find. The others can't live on the grass. One wrinkle comes into their plans. Mm -hmm. They had figured that as they just take off cross-country, they'd be able to double-check with people as they come across farms and villages just to make sure, you know, we're going the right direction. They find no farms, no villages, no nothing. This is a very unpopulated territory. Not a dwelling in sight, not a road in sight. There's woods, woods, and more woods. A couple of times they come across some abandoned relics of civilization, but like things that have Crumbling been clearly walls and not stuff. populated for a long, long, long time. Archaeologists would be checking out the territory. So they're feeling pretty alone. Perrin's dreams, unfortunately, mm-hmm. kick in again during this time. The spooky stuff is happening again. Egwene, she's having dreams too, but they're just nightmares about Shader Lugeth. She complains about these same things, and like Perrin's like, oh yeah, that's so bad. <laughs> he doesn't talk about his dreams, because they freak him out, of course. After many days, un- uneventfully journeying like this, they see campfire smoke ahead. First sign of anyone else out there in a long time. Perrin carefully sneaks ahead to investigate. Hold on, did you say they found someone because of a fire? A campfire. Yeah, see? Fires. Don't light uh, fires. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. get found. But see, this person, Wanted whoever's up found. there, wants to be found. That's right. The oddest looking fellow that Perrin has ever seen. Oh, yeah. He's dressed in a strange patchwork of animal furs, long graying brown hair, and a ponytail down to his waist, thick beard across half his chest. He's kicked back, relaxing in front of a fire that is roasting six rabbits on spits. Now, Perrin hasn't been able to even see a rabbit, not fail to catch one. Hasn't even seen one. This guy's got six of them roasting over an open fire. Nice job. Yeah, Perrin's like, oh, man. You can picture his stomach is gurgling. He's starting to drool a little bit. And this guy who's sitting there, kicked back with his eyes closed, opens one eye and says, hey, you done drooling? You You and your lady can come join me, you know. (laughs) <laughs> like what and he noticed he says this guy says you know i have seen after all you haven't eaten very well the last couple of days parents like you've been watching us well yeah Perrin, you guys have been lighting fires as you go <laughs> of course he's been following and watching you i don't think they've necessarily they been have lighting fires how else are they cooking their cook. tubers no they've been eating wild tubers they've been cooking them. you have to cook wild tubers you can eat a raw potato dude. there is a very good chance that various tubers that are not potatoes are poisonous uncooked 
they probably know the difference. And therefore would cook them. I don't remember it saying they were cooking their tubers. It does. It says that they were lighting fires. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, it did say they lighted fires other nights because... Egwene tried to light him with the one power every time and failed every time. Mm -hmm. You're right. But they do light the fires. All right. All right. I I make note of the fires. (laughs) You have this thing about fire, man. Fire, fire, (laughs) fire. But I don't want the fire is the thing. (laughs) So it's okay. All right. So this man who has now welcomed them in, Elias Makara, he has... Makara? That's how I say it. How do you say it? With more of a... Machera? Mashera. 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 It's a, could be, could be Makara, Mashera. Well, that's one of the fun things about the will. books. You can pronounce them however you want. I'm kind of curious what the book says. Go ahead, look up the pronunciation. I always said Elias Makara. You think this would? Be I've under... heard some people say Elias. I saw Elias. I like Elias. So he welcomes them in, and Egwene and Bella they come and join. And, you know, Perrin is somewhat disturbed to notice something unusual. Now, I already described his weird appearance, but he sees his eyes. This guy has yellow eyes. Machira. Machira? How did I say it? Makara. Okay. I think I meant Machira. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Elias Machira. And he's got yellow eyes. and, And when you really stare at them, they're more like golden, like polished gold. They're, they're glistening a little bit. And this is not typical. No, so, there's something familiar about it, but it is weird. Elias asks, what in the world they're doing out here? Because there isn't another house within 50 miles of their current location. Well, I guess that's why they weren't going to find mm-hmm. anybody. Yeah. Now, Egwene says they're headed to Camelin, and Elias, he just enters into a fit of laughter. Oh, yeah. When he calms down, he notes that the line that they've been walking on for the past couple of days, if they'd kept on that line, they would have missed Camelin by at least 100 miles or more to the north and wouldn't have hit anything, village, farm, house, going all the way to the spine of the world and crossing over to the Iowa Waste. I mean, they wouldn't have run into anything, so... Yeah, that was not a good plan. <laughs> Don't do that. They ask, of course, then for help. Okay, you know we're off track. Can you help us get to Camelin? And he's not sure he wants to do that. He stays away from cities. Then he tells them, be still. My friends are coming. Hmm. Uh, what kind of friends does a madman have? Bella starts freaking out. And he's like, calm her down. My friends won't hurt her. But, you know, she needs to be still. And, and you guys, too. At which point his friends show up. His friends are... The friggin' wolves. Wolves. Big, wild, hairy wolves walk right into the circle of light around the fire and just settle themselves down amongst all the humans. Perrin notices, that's where I've seen eyes like Elias's. The wolves' eyes look very similar to Elias. Or I guess we should say it the other way around. Elias's eyes look like wolves' eyes. wolves' eyes. Perrin calmly begins reaching for his axe because wolves are like dangerous animals who could easily kill him. And And Elias says, don't do that. They will kill you. That's a bad idea. They won't like that. They won't keep being friendly if you start reaching for sharp, pokey weapons. They don't like how that feels. He's assured them. They're friendly right now. Okay, relax. Mm -hmm. Egwene asks if they're tame. And Elias (laughs) laughs again. Wolves don't tame. Which, okay, hold up. I'm sorry. Yes, they do. Mm -mm. They don't initially tame, but they are totally capable of domestication. How do you think we got dogs? Oh, that is a touchy subject to wolves, especially in the Wheel of Time. 
They look down their noses at dogs. Yeah, in the Wheel of Time, sure, that's that's a thing. Why is that a thing? Wolves? Dogs are wolves. No, that were just ooh, domesticated ooh, man. and breeded in a long wolves line of things. Wolves are coming to haunt your dreams and teach you a lesson, my son. I'm sorry, but that's just... <laughs> it's true? Dogs turned their back on being a wolf in order to have easy food and easy fires. They have gone the soft route and they are not worthy of being wolves anymore. Okay, but they also get free food and belly rubs, whatever they want. And walk on a leash and do what their master says. Sometimes. Always. They're wimps. But my point is, Elias is saying wolves just don't. Clearly, they they do. They don't, he's saying, because once they, just they do, they're to be no longer wolves. wolves. That's right. Dogs are lesser creatures. But they do tame, <laughs> technically <laughs> speaking. Genetically speaking, dogs are different from wolves. So they are not okay. simply wolves that have been tamed. They are genetically different. But if we take a group of wolves and start working at domesticating, enough generations go by then you've got wolves that have been domesticated and are now dogs. By now, people here for Wheel of Time content are bored. <laughs> you've edited out some of this, so it's not so bad. Ah, Probably. Probably not. Crap. Anyways, he says, these wolves are not tame. They are my friends, okay? And he talks to them. He actually talks to them. Now, they don't talk back. They instead communicate with thoughts, images, even smells. They can communicate the sense that they remember. And Elias, when he receives these things, he can translate what they mean. So it's like they're talking to him. These even translate as far as to know the names of the wolves. Which are not singular names initially, but rather a complex series of images, emotions, feelings. But that he translates. translate into And these names. particular four wolves are Dapple, Burn, Hopper, and Wind. When Perrin and Egwene look at them, one is very obvious. Burn. He's burned. He's got a big burn scar. He actually had the name Burn before the burn, but it just worked out that way. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure it's a nickname he earned. Perrin is curious and asks how Elias learned to talk to the wolves. And Elias shares he didn't. Rather, the wolves sensed it in him and started communicating. So it's just something innate to Elias. Some people just have that. There were those around Elias who saw, huh, wolves keep showing up everywhere Elias is. He must be controlling them, calling them, doing something bad. That must be something of the Dark One. He's evil. Yes. And Aes Sedai even, eventually, try to deal with him and... There was talk about gentling. Get that power out of him. The wolves, they're fascinated when they find a person like Elias. Someone who can actually speak with them. They remember people used to do this, do this all the time. It was common. Yeah. They have memories of hunting with men yeah. and... and Having these friendships. Men used to dance with wolves. Oh, indeed. <laughs> wow, I can't think of the actor's <laughs> name now. I'm totally trying to think of the actor's name. Kevin something. I have no Is that idea. Right? Uh, I don't think I've ever seen. Played Robin Hood. Played the Kevin Costner? postman. Kevin Costner. Yep. He's like, thank you. Thank you for giving me a little plug. Dancing <laughs> with wolves. Isn't it dances? Dances with wolves, dancing with wolves, dances. I think it's dances with wolves. He he won an Oscar or two for that. And now I've we never can seen barely it. Remember I've the name. never I, seen it. It was way too long and I didn't bother to see it. Sorry. Not nearly as fascinating. I, I did see The Postman, which <laughs> didn't win any Oscars. And I saw uh, never Robin heard of Hood. I, I saw the ones that aren't acclaimed. That's the one with... Um... The man who's in everything with the rich voice. 
Morgan Freeman. That wasn't who I was gonna say well, who, who you it were was, going with. But I was Alan Rickman. Oh yes, yes, Sever Snape. He shows up. That in was a the name I was things. trying to think of. And Die Hard. Wow, <laughs> we are really going off the deep end on, on this now. Okay. Die Hard is fantasy, apparently. We got there from wolves, people. From wolves. We danced around a lot. Okay. Uh, so Egwene asks, okay. As she always does. Can you teach us how to talk with the wolves like you do? I just love here. Egwene's not afraid. Egwene doesn't think it's weird. Her instinct is, I want to do that. I want that. And he's like, no, you can't learn how to talk with wolves. Some can do it. Some can't. Then he says, now the wolves say, uh, Perrin, you can do it. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Perrin's like, this guy is nuts. I can't talk to wolves. Then he notices all the wolves are looking right at him. Kind of expectantly like, dude, yes, you can. Let's chat. <laughs> Hi, wolves. Elias then shifts the conversation. He asks, why are you actually way out here if you're on your way to Camelin? And Egwene starts into a cover story. She and Perrin had concocted this story in case they came across anybody asking, you know, what they're doing so that they don't have to actually explain. Mm -hmm. They politely, like, Elias politely waits, lets her go through her whole spiel, and then says... And she's doing it because they're telling a bald-faced lie. Yeah. And Perrin lies badly. He can't, not really. No, no. His face says, hi, listen to my words. I am lying. Yeah, the whole blushing thing. <laughs> so Egwene goes for it, lays it all out. It's all done, and Elias says... That Dapple says it's a sack of shit. Pretty much. Yeah, they can totally tell. You are not telling us the truth. Egwene's like... Oh. Well, fine, if you think I'm, we're not telling the truth, maybe we'll set up our camp somewhere else. And he's like, hmm, yeah, normally that'd be a good idea, but the wolves and I, we can smell Trollocs and Halfmen, like, all Everywhere. over your thoughts. And we kind of want to know why. In essence, they're thinking, are you in league with the Shadow Spawn? Because we don't like them. We don't like them at all. Which, to the Two Rivers folk, is relieving, but a little surprising, I mean, Trollocs kind of look like wolves. And they've kind of had this image that wolves are, you know, bad. You need to watch out for wolves. They're nasty. They'll kill you. But apparently they can, but Ho they prefer not to. However, right now the wolves do look a little nasty when, you know, Trollocs, half men, and, and, and now everything seems tense. And They're kind so, of working into a little bit of a frenzy themselves. And Egwene's like, ah, and Perrin says, okay, let me tell you how it is. And he rolls out the whole story. Now he tells the truth. Just yeah. I'm not sure he really leaves much of anything out. No? Uh, he does, I think, not tell them about some of their other companions. He loosely makes it seem like it was like he, Egwene, and Moraine Lan. Yeah, he definitely mentions the Aes Sedai. But he does not mention Random Matt. And so they are heading on to Camelin on their way to Tarvalin. They need help from what they're being chased by. Elias' comments are not really holding much with Aes Sedai, and this is where he lays out the fact that when he first had these issues with wolves, the Red Aja, mm -hmm. who are the ones who go after male channelers and gentle them, they wanted to gentle him, and he's like, uh, no, it's not the one power, and they didn't care, and they tried to capture him, and he basically told them they were Black Aja for trying this, and they don't like being called Black Aja, which means they are dark friends. Uh-oh. Yeah, and 
he had to fight his way out. He actually had to kill a couple of warders to Nasty escape. Nasty business, killing warders. Yeah, he did not like doing that, and he'd rather not have to again, so he stays clear of Aes Sedai. And his recommendation would be that they stay clear as well. It's a nice little lore drop with a whole lot of missing details. Yes. Foreshadowing. You may learn more about this later. Might take a while. Perrin comments that, with, hey, with Fade's Trollocs Drakkar chasing us, we don't have much choice. We have to go to the Aes Sedai. Elias so, says, you could stay with me. Yeah, you have a choice. The wolves hate those nasty critters. They would help keep you safe. Nevertheless, Egwene insists we have to go to Camelin and then on to Tarvalin. Oh, of course. She got told she can learn to be an Aes Sedai. She can't <laughs> learn to speak with wolves. Elias chuckles. He says, yeah, Dapple said... That would be your decision, basically saying to Perrin, yeah, she's got you whooped, man. Whatever she says, we know Which... you're going to do it. <laughs> you're, she's wearing the pants. All right. She's pretty clearly wearing a dress. And yeah, surprisingly, though, Elias announces that he and the wolves will travel south with them for a time. They will help them. So now we skip ahead. Chapter 25. This is called The Traveling People. Egwene and Perrin, along with Bella, travel now with Elias. Sometimes three of the wolves... Dapple, Hopper, and Wind are traveling alongside them. Other times you can't see any wolves, but Elias assures them the rest of the pack is nearby. Close enough to help if need be, but far enough off to avoid any human trouble. Mm -hmm. As the wolves see it, anytime you're around humans, there's trouble. So we don't like to be near the people. They travel south in this manner for three days, with Egwene and Perrin eating way better than before. Oh yeah. Yeah, the wolves kindly bring them rabbits and squirrels. They're great hunters. And Elias points out plants that they can consume, supplement their diet. Rather than just like, well, you could try to eat that one, but maybe it'll kill you. (laughs) The afternoon of the third day, they come across a considerably sized stand of trees. And as they approach, three large mastiff dogs come bursting out. Hey, look, scary dogs. I wonder if they're, like, domesticated, descended from wolves. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Perrin grabs his sling. He's going to fight off the dogs, and Elias is like, nope, stop. I got this. Let's out some whistles, some tones, and the wool, the, the dogs, they calm right down. They even sure start you didn't mean wolves? Tails. You called them wolves. Ah, shut up. They start wagging, and they're happy now. Elias knows the dogs. They go on with the dogs into the trees, and they find a group of Tuatha'an. The traveling people, also known as Tinkers. What do you know about the Tuatha'an, Zach? So there's a couple things here. One, a lot of the world that we know of, especially people like Two Rivers Folk, view the Tuatha'an negatively. To our modern sensibilities, it, they share a lot of similarities with uh, like the Romani people. They are peaceful. They travel. They do their thing, very colorful, and they do tinker and like to fix things, especially things made of tin, like pots, therefore earning the nickname Tinkers. Now, there is a lot to be said about these people. We learn some over time, but truthfully, for about 90% of this series, I don't care about them at all. They actually do play a a significant little role. Yes, a significant little. Little. Tiny, they do almost nothing. But there is a key and part I of the overall story don't care. that's revealed well, through them. But a lot of their most important aspects of who they are and things that would be very interesting to dive into never come up really, and we don't care about it, and it doesn't matter in the grand scheme, and it maybe even doesn't exist. Tuatha on, hater. Like the song. Okay, let's move into that then. Mm-hmm. 
What do we learn about the Tuatha'an? Okay, they've been wandering the world in their own little group since the breaking of the world, seeking a song. They have no idea what the song is, but they believe if they ever find it, it will mean the return of the paradise of the Age of Legends. They are pacifists, Mm -hmm. meaning they will do no harm to anyone, even at the cost of their own lives. They believe if they allowed someone to hurt them, that person, by hurting them, would be hurting themselves. And they want to cause no harm from some, for someone. So they will run away to the best of their ability so that person can't hurt themselves by hurting them. Yeah. It is this deep conviction they have. Call it the way of the leaf. Yes. And as much as I hate on the Tuatha'an, the way of the leaf is pretty cool. Yeah. And they describe it in this chapter as the leaf lives its appointed time and does not struggle against the wind that carries it away. The leaf does no harm and finally falls to nourish new leaves. They clearly, though, have never encountered, like, poison ivy or <laughs> stinging nettle. That stuff is all or natural. Anything that is a is. harmful leaf. They do believe very firmly there is no excuse for violence ever. The leader who greets them is named Rayan. Elias refers to him as Mahdi, but we come to know that that is a title. And in the old tongue, it means seeker as in the seeker of the song. His wife, Illa, joins Rayan in welcoming them all, taking a particular interest in Egwene, kind of like woman-to-woman thing. Mm-hmm. Rayan and Illa's grandson, Aram, shows up, about the same age as Perrin, instantly starts flirting with Egwene. Mm-hmm. And to Perrin's surprise, she's actually enjoying the attention rather than finding it annoying. Aram invites Egwene to join him at his parents' campsite nearby, where they will be dancing, and off she goes. Aram reminds me of, like, what you get if you cross the idea of a hippie and a frat boy. (laughs) And you put them in one person. And I like it. They're still kind of a flirtatious douche. (laughs) Oh, can we say that word on here? You put the explicit tag up, right? (laughs) I did not. Oops. Oh, guess I got to change the setting. You know, I swear sometimes. While Perrin and Elias remain with Rain, he tells a story that has come to him recently. It originally came from a Tuatha'an group traveling across the Aeol Waste, which alone surprises Perrin as he thought the Aeol attack anyone who enters the Waste. Elias shares that, nope, some people can enter the Waste without mm-hmm. being bothered. Gleeman, honest peddlers, the Kyrianen prior to the Aeol War, but not, not anymore, anymore, and the Tuatha'an. Ran mentions the Aeol actually avoid the Tuathuan, won't even come near them as if frightened by them in some manner. They just have nothing to do with them. The story itself, what we hear, is that it is known that some young Aeol take it upon themselves to travel north into the Blight. Some young men go alone, thinking they've been called to kill the Dark One and typically are never seen again. Most Aeol who go into the Blight do it in small groups. And they explicitly go to hunt Trollocs. Mm-hmm. They're going to make their make their reputation. It's a little bit of a proving ground. Yep. Two years before, a group of the traveling people came across such a band. But these were young women warriors, which is not unknown in the Aeol. There's a, a group called the Fardurai Mai, and they are translated Maidens of the Spear. Just simply, well, a, a sorority of Aeol. They go off battling. They are women warriors. Looking at it, it makes sense that you don't say the S, but I always thought you did. You can look that up. Look it up in our glossary. So this group of young women, they'd been up in the Blight, but where the uh, traveling people find them is 100 miles south of the Blight. 
where they have escaped from it, being pursued by Trollocs, and they're all dead except this one last one. You looked it up? Yeah, far derise my. Okay, you got it from the mouth of Zach. Far derise my. It's literally R I Z E is how you. Unless in your mental head canon you've been saying derise my, then you can say I think Jim is right and just keep saying it that way and you are fine. So but I feel vindicated. This last one is alive but barely. And when they're coming along upon this group of slaughtered maidens, she crawls, dragging herself over to the Very cinematic. And keep in mind, they always avoid the Tuatha'an, but she is on her deathbed, pulling herself to them, clearly knowing who they are, but she has to tell them something. This is how important this is and practically with her last gasp she shares a message they must carry with them and here's the quote leaf blighter means to blind the eye of the world lost one sight burner comes tell them to stand ready for he who comes with the dawn till them she dies monty python style the The castle castle of Jinx. This message didn't make much sense, but there it was. And now they've carried the message out and shared it with another group. And so here's Rayan sharing it with Elias. And Elias is like, yeah, hmm, no, that doesn't mean anything to me. I mean, he knows a couple things. Yeah. Uh, Leaf Blighter and Sightburner, those are names for the Dark One. Yes, Aiel names for the Dark One. But it means nothing. Yeah, that's it. So. The rest of the message, no clue. Okay, so Egwene returns now. She's had a great time with Aram. Oh, yeah, they've been dancing. Oh, yeah, she's Everybody all loves dam- dancing in this world. Perrin is a bit disappointed that Egwene chose to go off and have fun in the midst of what they are experiencing. And when he says as much privately to her, she actually flings her arms around him and breaks down in tears. She's not... She's clearly dealing with something here. Yeah, but I truthfully, I kind of think Egwene is the one handling this better than Perrin, even though she's the one who ends up in tears here. Because... She recognizes things are bad. Things are going to continue to be bad. This may be the last chance that they have to have fun and be happy in a long time. So in the small chance where they have a time to not worry actively, they need to distract themselves by having a little bit of fun. So you're saying this was not about her being a loose woman and going and being a floozy? No. No. She's just saying, hey, I've got a moment to just kind of forget my troubles and let loose a little bit. I should take advantage of it. Well, let's add in the fact that if you take your supposed question of, I don't even, I don't feel comfortable referring to her that way. Um, <laughs> Floozy? No, a I loose mean- woman. that <laughs> just feels <laughs> gross and wrong. Oh my goodness. Um, but So it, am I offending all the millennials by using a term like that? Probably offending a lot of people. <laughs> but... <laughs> It has a tendency to kind of give me an image of like, this is like a bachelorette party. But if that's the idea, then that would imply she's intending to like actually get married or to Rand. And Egwene really hasn't shown that she's that interested in actually doing that. No, that's not the understanding of the two rivers. And Perrin well knows she's kind of like practically promised to Rand. But we have a difference between what is the supposed established what was known and everything we've seen in this book. Everything we have seen in this book. That does not change no. what the people from the two rivers had in their mindset. But I'm not talking about what people think. I'm talking about what is, what Egwene is thinking and feeling. 
Yeah, but Perrin can't read what Egwene is thinking. That, my only point here was to say this isn't her treating it as a bachelorette party because she's not intending to go off and get married. Well, I never said she was treating it as a bachelorette party. No, you said she's a loose woman, which is I didn't gross. say she was a loose woman. <laughs> well, we got lost in this conversation. Please cut some of this just because I don't want it to be that. <laughs> When she breaks down crying, it's clearly not because she was off dancing and she thinks Parent's upset with her. She's just literally stressed over all this. And she says, Parent, tell me they're all right. She is actually worried about Rand and Matt and even Moraine and Lan, you know, that they're dead, you know, and she's mm-hmm. just saying, just just let me know. Say it. Say it that they're fine. You can and, lie to me, but I need to hear it. And he says, I- I'm sure they're all right. She's like, thank you. Good night. And she goes to sleep. He's like, well, okay then. Okay. And he's left thinking, I wish Rand was here because he's the one who always understood women. I I don't get this at all. Is this a recurring theme? Mm. Let's jump to another chapter. Chapter 27. Yeah. Shelter from the storm. Perrin, Egwene, and Elias stay with the traveling people for a number of days. Traveling south and east as a group in a leisurely fashion. You say it's great. Why is it great? Well, they're not running. There's plenty of food and oh man but that's causing parent problems that they're not running they're taking this leisurely yeah but they don't feel like they're actively being hunted but he's like we gotta go we gotta go and he does feel like they're being hunted what if trollocs or fades show up they could show up anytime but elias does kind of reassure and be like the wolves are out there looking making sure and notably after i believe i believe it already happened and we didn't talk about it one of the wolves did leave leave with other wolves to go hunting after the trollocs that were yeah after them because he doesn't like people at all so he's wandering a little farther away perrin is quite stressed though elias does say hey you know come on chillax okay you don't you've been through a lot of tough stuff and you don't know when the next tough stuff's coming you got a few days here just traveling with the tuatha on make the most of it take it easy Perrin does not do well in this circumstance taking it easy, but Egwene does. She's having a blast. She loves dancing. Speaking of dancing, there's a humorous situation that happens here. And I see you wrote something that I'm going to challenge in a a way. Just go for it. All right. All right. He's looking at my notes. The young women of the Tuatha'an, they decide one of the nights to dance a different sort of dance Mm -hmm. to slow music, a slow, sinuous style of dancing. Basically, I picture highly suggestive belly dancing. And Elias, he's like, nice. <laughs> and so is Rain. You know, the, the, the men seem to enjoy this. And Perrin is feeling very awkward. He's like, uh, um, I don't know what to do about this. This is very suggestive. And this is not two rivers at all. And when they notice how embarrassed he seems to be getting, They're like, oh, we're dancing this one every night because this is a hoot. (laughs) Now, what I want to challenge here is your picture. This isn't highly suggestive belly dancing. This is just belly dancing. Belly dancing in and of itself is pleasant to look at. And Perrin, as the country bumpkin he is, has zero experience of anything like it. Mm -hmm. He's going and he's... You don't think you can do belly dancing that's not suggestive? Not if you do it well. All right, our fans can chime in and tell it, us what It is they think a of way of moving the body that is both beautiful and expressive, and while it may not be suggestive in the sense of you are actually conveying some suggestive intent, it is something that allows you to appreciate the body and its form. Speaking of appreciating it, 
they even teach it to Egwene. Because yeah. again, she's all in with this lifestyle. This is fun stuff. So she starts learning. And that I think that mortifies Perrin even more. Now Egwene, the nice two rivers woman, is also learning mm-hmm. how to do this dance. And I enjoy Jordan's description. It's very beautiful, uh, almost poetic, how he kind of describes this dance, which fits in with what it is. But I really think it's just nothing special, per se, other than the fact that Perrin has no experience with it. Now, you said you're not real excited with the Tuatha'an as a character, as as a No, a actually, theme. I think they're great. I think they're super underutilized. Therefore, I don't care about them in the books. In the TV show being developed, they need to have this part in. We gotta see the dance. It's not that I need it. It's the fact that I know it's going to be there because they want their ratings. Oh, absolutely. That's gotta be there. Being around the Tinkers... This is actually as they spend more time with them causing an internal conflict for Perrin. Mm -hmm. He sees how they live, he's learned about this way of the leaf, and he sees how happy they are, how content. Mm -hmm. And he thinks they are idiots, because what if Trollocs come? What if bandits come? And you're not even going to defend yourself? I mean, you have to be ready to protect those you care about and stand up for yourself where others will constantly take advantage of you. But they won't, and yet they are so happy. And he's picturing... It would be really nice to be this happy and content. He stands ready to fight for what's right, but he's not nearly as happy as he see these, sees these people are. No. So this is a struggle for him. To an extent, chosen ignorance can be bliss. Two other things are noticed by Perrin mm-hmm. during his time with the Tinkers. One, his dreams have returned to normal. Since he's been with the Tinkers here now, he's not seeing Bialzaman and those visits in his dreams. And there's no denying now over these days that he can regularly sense the wolves. He's not talking to them or anything. No, he refuses to. He's not even trying. When they're there, he doesn't have to see them. He knows they're there. He can know right where they're at. He feels what they're feeling. He can even tell a little bit about their individual identities. He can sense differences amongst the wolves. This is really troubling him. It's like, I don't want this. I do not want to be something like Elias. Am I going to grow my hair in a ponytail and start wearing animal furs? Am I going to grow a beard? Are my eyes going to turn freaky golden? I don't want this. Start of the series, Perrin doesn't have a beard, does he? No. After many days with the Tinkers, Baalzaman does finally come into one of Perrin's dreams. Uh-oh. Yeah. This particular dream, it's described. It starts pleasantly enough. He's actually in the kitchen of the Wine Spring Inn, and Marin Elvire, Egwene's mom, is working at some baking, and he's just sitting there hanging out with her, and a wolf walks into the kitchen, which seems perfectly normal in the dream. Just sits right down. Yep, facing away from Perrin, like watching out the door. A little later, Baalzaman appears, and the wolf rises, and you know, gets all threatening to Baalzaman. Baalzaman comments on the wolf, Is this what you have to protect you? Well, I have faced this before. And with that, he burns the wolf to ash. It's painful. Yeah. He goes on to turn his attention to Perrin and says a few key key phrases worth quoting here. He says, you cannot run from me. You cannot hide from me. If you are the one, you are mine. The eye of the world will consume you. I mark you mine. At which point he directs a raven at Perrin who attacks one of his eyes and then Perrin wakes up. He sees Elias there next to him, about to wake him up. He hears in his mind descending from the wolves. Fire, pain, fire, hate, kill, hate. Elias says, it's time. Get up, boy. It's time for us to go. Now, up until this point, Elias had said, hey, relax. Spend your time it's with the tinkers. Chill. But he'd also mentioned, I just have a feeling. 
We're not supposed to leave. We're supposed to wait. When we're supposed to leave, we'll know. I just get this gut feeling sometimes, and I've learned to trust it. And now he's saying, okay, now it is time to go. Let's go. And it just kind of seems to coincide with this dream. Couple questions. Yeah. One, do we have any idea who this wolf is? It doesn't Mm, say in the book. No. And I'm trying to think, I don't think it could be any of the three that we've met who are still around. Yeah, I don't believe so. And spoilers, we can't talk about why it might not be. They are now going to leave. They get away in a wet as well, and they're quickly preparing to leave. And despite the urgency, however, Rayan says, wait, 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 we must be able to say goodbye. So all the Tuathan, we got to get them all roused and ready. There's a formal ceremony. And <sighs> while this is all happening and we're trying to get going, Perrin's like, oh, I thought my dreams were safe. I kind of thought the wolves maybe were protecting me, just like in the dream where that wolf was. And he hears ascending from one of the wolves. It says, not complete, except full heart, full mind. You still struggle, only complete when you accept. So there's an acknowledgement. Yes, the wolves are there trying to help him, but they can only partly help him because he won't let them help him more. And then he learns something else he can do. He forces them out of his head. Yep, I don't want to I don't want to hear this. He didn't know about. he could do that. He couldn't do he didn't know he could do that in his dreams. He didn't know. Yep. And the chapter closes with a great line. Lay it on us. So parents eventually kind of going you spent so much time dancing you spent so much time with i say Ila rather than illa what were you guys talking about all the time and she goes well she was talking to me about things how to be a woman things and parent just laughs and they're like teach you how to be a woman nobody teaches us how to be men and Egwene just turns back to him right in his face goes that is probably why you make such a bad job of it <laughs> and i'm she won she won that conversation right there <sighs> Indeed. Let's move to chapter 29. Yeah. Eyes without pity. Elias sets a brisk pace now with Bella, Egwene, and Perrin working hard to keep up with him. He's on foot, but they are really having to push to catch up. It's like he's trying to make up for lost time now all of a sudden. And uh, he seems more careful at night. Small fires. Doing nothing. You like that. Small fires. Trying to leave no trace of passing. Elias seems to be trying to watch around them constantly. All directions. As if he senses something's out there and he's frustrated he can't see what it is. Mm -hmm. Also, as a journey, he starts going around every hill. He refuses to go up on higher ground where their profiles would be visible. They're trying to be quick but stealthy. He's also keeping them very quiet. When they actually ask, why are we needing to be so quiet? He's like, shh, not so quiet, not so loud. (laughs) (laughs) When they eventually come to a ridge too wide to reasonably go around, then Elias creeps up at a crawl he makes him wait at the bottom of the ridge he skinnies up to the top and peeks over just with his eyeballs you know and and just sits there and watches for like minutes and then finally waves them up and so okay then they come up with him and there's nothing there they can see everything's fine what what the heck yeah that happens a second time when they get to the third time that they get to a ridge like that parents like i'm coming with you okay but stay down crawl quiet so they creep up just like that and they're both up to the top at just minutes looking. Perrin sees nothing. What the heck? This is stupid. And he finally blurts out, we're wasting time as he starts to stand when a flock of ravens bursts out of a nearby stand of trees. They spiral in the sky and then all as one cord head straight south. That's not good. And Perrin recalls, uh, ravens, uh, dark ones, spies, 
crap. Yeah. He asks why Elias hadn't let them know that's what they were watching for. And he says... Uh, He didn't know. He just had one of his feelings. And, uh, you know, Perrin was also banking on the fact the wolves hadn't warned them there was anything to worry about. And Elias says... Don't look up. They don't look up. They wouldn't even notice something like that. (laughs) Now they have a problem. Ravens in front of them may or may not have seen them. It might be coincidence that they all left and headed that way. But they can't risk going too fast, too far, and catching up to them. Being spotted, for sure. However, there could be more ravens behind them. They don't know. We're going to need to proceed quickly, but cautiously. Elias says he does know a location ahead of them that they might be able to reach by sundown, where they would be safe from the ravens. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the spot is known to others, but we'll just have to chance it. It's a popular camping spot, I guess. Yeah, and he doesn't like to be around people, but we need a safe place. This would be a safe place. He also notes, you know, if we can make it to sundown, we'll be fine, because the ravens don't fly at night. They, They roost. We just have to either make it to sundown or make it to the safe place. One of those, without getting into problems with the ravens. Now, what kind of problems with the ravens? They're just birds. What's well, the we're about to see what can be a problem with ravens. That's right. When they get to another ridge where they're looking over and watching, they don't see anything. There's a stand of trees nearby and a fox comes running out of the trees. A whole bunch of ravens take off from those trees and dive down onto the fox and peck it to smithereens. And I think this is the first time we really get an association of a fox with a raven. But it will happen again. And I, I like it. They're fox and raven. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, our, our friends at Watt Spoilers would like that because they, they have Fox and Raven Media hmm. that sponsors Watt Spoilers now. So Fox and Raven, it's a thing. We will attend. If you don't know that yet, you will. So, uh, hmm, boom, this fox completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And Perrin has it in his mind. I'm sure Egwene does too. That could be us. Yeah, what if a, a whole flock decides to dive bomb us? There's no way we could defend ourselves off of 100, 200 ravens. I mean, ever seen Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds? Um, I've seen clips. I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah. I'll get to it. They can be nasty. So we've got to make sure we don't get seen by these. So here they go. This rest of the chapter is pretty much a cat and mouse game where they're, they're running ahead, trying not to be the fox. They're trying not to get caught by a batch of ravens. Mm-hmm. They do see different groups of ravens, not just the one group they knew was ahead of them, but off to the west, off to the east. They see ravens, but none of them come right at them. None of them seem to see them. They're loosely in the eye of the raven storm. It's all going around them. There you go. They seem to be in that point of calm. They don't want to get out of that. You could almost say there's some kind of twisting or luck that seems to be on their side. Mm. Now, Tavern. <laughs> the wolves are still around them. And now have gone behind them to watch their trail. And they warn them there is a flock of ravens coming up from the back. So we have a problem now. They warn them that these ravens are gaining on them. Mm -hmm. So now it's, okay, forget about the ones that are ahead of them. Just run. We have to keep ahead of them. The sun is getting low. If we can just outpace these ravens until sundown, we should be okay. Perrin's in touch with the wolves. He's getting messages. He knows, based on what he's hearing, we're not going to make it. They're going to catch up, and he's picturing what's going to happen when the ravens catch them. And he starts thinking about Egwene, and he starts fingering his axe. And what's in Perrin's mind, Zach? It would be better a quick death than what happened to that fox. Mm. Which is hardcore, Perrin. Yeah. Put her out of her misery before she enters extreme raven misery. (sighs) Thankfully, 
he doesn't have to make that decision. No, because there's they're running along suddenly, Elias starts laughing and they feel just a little different. Mm -hmm. They've made it to some place where the one power won't work and the Dark One's forces will not enter. They are in a steading. What the heck is a steading, Zach? So there's a couple of things I can say, but the first thing I need to say is, we don't know. <laughs> and we never will find out. They exist as a peaceful place, exempt from the power, possibly not of this world, kind of. It is a home for a group of beings we've yet to meet. That's good. You're not spoiling. Very nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying. But there are many of them after the breaking of the world that are just scattered and abandoned across this world to serve as kind of safe havens sometimes to the casual traveler, as well as just places that exist in the world. Moving further into the steading, knowing they don't have to worry about the ravens now. They make it to a pool of water. They drink and refresh themselves, get out some food. They relax a little bit. While they're safe in the steading, they come across a big rock that looks like an eye. It is an eye. That's what Elias tells them. And he tells them the story of Arthur Hawkwing's eye. And we get a little bit of a lore dump on Arthur Hawkwing. Would you like to tell us about that? Loosely, Arthur Hawkwing was planning to build a big city capital thing in a steading, especially as he got in his whole anti-Sedai mindset. And a steading's a perfect place to keep him out. And well, then the empire collapsed and... He died and never finished it. The way of things with rulers. He once upon a time ruled the entire Westland, and it didn't survive him much longer than he lived. And so all that all is left, left of the statue, at least, is an eye. And that's where we end chapter 29. We get to our last chapter for today, chapter 30, Children of Shadow. Perrin, Egwene, and Elias are sitting around a fire by the pool. A fire, Zach. Yeah, no, like I'm saying... This is a thing. They're still and it looking gets mentioned here. at the fragment of the statue of Hawkwing. Perrin is reflecting on the axe at this point and how much he's grown to hate it as he pictures what he almost was willing to do to Egwene with that axe. Yeah. And Elias, looking at Perrin, can tell there's something wrong. He doesn't have the ability to read minds, but Perrin swears he could. Yeah, now he's like, I, I can tell what you're thinking. And Perrin, you know, kind of unburdens his heart to Elias and how, how horrible he felt about the possibility he might put Egwene out of her misery before having to deal with that. In my opinion, Elias basically says, if you have the presence of mind to feel bad about it, you have the presence of mind to make the right choice as to whether that would be necessary or not. And he's also saying, you know, okay, so you hate that axe right now. As long as you hate that thing, you'll use it better than most people. Yeah. If you start to love the axe and what you can do with it, that's when you have a problem then throw it away. He and Perrin suddenly, in the midst of this, get a sharp sending from the wolves. Urgent! Danger! 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 Danger, Will Robinson. Elias calls to douse the fire, but he regrets there's no way they can hide that they'd been there. Oh yeah, clearly, they made a fire. You cannot hide that fire like that. <laughs> he tells Egwene and Perrin grab their things, rush away with Bella, try to hide, and I'm going with the wolves and we're just going to make ourselves scarce. And okay. poof, he's out. He's gone. Turns out there are some men coming in with horses. Dapple says, again, sending to Perrin, they smell wrong. Turns out it's a group of white cloaks. Well, that explains why they smell yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah, we've run into white cloaks before. It's all the bleach there's on their clothing. It's a little off with white cloaks. Unfortunately, the white cloaks spot wind, mm. and they therefore break into some search parties to find the wolf. In searching, they find Perrin and Egwene. Oops. As the white cloaks force them to surrender... 
Hopper rushes out to help. Yay! He attacks the one threatening Perrin and sending feelings, run, run! And then the White Cloaks kill Hopper. Not so yay. Perrin is mind-linked with Hopper. When Hopper gets speared with a lance and then multiple lances, and Perrin, in essence, feels Hopper die and goes red. Just in that agony and that loss and that feel, he goes berserker mode. And the next thing we know... Perrin's waking up. And there's <laughs> a few up. people who will never wake up. He and Egwene are now captives of the White Cloaks, and he discovers in his rage he killed a couple White Cloaks. I believe it was it was two. Yeah. They're being interviewed now by Lord Captain Jeffram Bornhold. Oh, hey, there's that Bornhold, Bornhold name again. Bornhold, yeah. Who is being attended by Child Byar. Child, name. not being his real name. Child no. is a term with the White Cloaks. So he's a lower-ranked. Child, please. Child, please. Child buyer. Buyer suspects Egwene and Perrin are dark friends because, well, of course, I mean, they attacked white cloaks, they killed white cloaks, and they're hanging with wolves. Let's be honest, anyone who's not a white cloak is a dark friend, right? Bayar is a fanatical zealot, and so he would completely agree with you just said. You know, anything strange like that must be a, a dark friend. Bornhold, he's risen higher in the white cloaks. He's honestly, reason. He's, he's proof that not all white cloaks are zealous nutjobs. That's right. He's got a head on his shoulders, a little more competent in how he thinks of things. He kind of talks Bornhold down, you know, there could be some other explanations why they're here. But the facts are the facts. Perrin killed two White Cloaks. He's going to have to answer for that. In being questioned, Perrin does reveal his true name. He gives them his first and last. And where he's from. Yep. The Two Rivers. That's going to haunt him. We won't say anything else right now, but please remember, we said that now, mark it down, that's going to be a problem later. He also admits that he doesn't necessarily feel guilt, he feels kind of justified. Because they they were hurting They killed his friend. It's like, um, you're putting a wolf on the same level as a human? That's a problem. They're both going to be taken with the White Cloaks until they can return to Amador, which we learn is the headquarters of the White Cloaks, or Children of the Light, as they refer to themselves. And at that point, they will be questioned right there in headquarters. And if Egwene truly is telling the truth, she will probably be released. But Perrin, even if he's not a dark friend, he's still going to have to pay for killing white cloaks and he will probably be hung. Question. Yeah. Do they say that they will be questioned or put to the question? Because there's a difference. Mm, I don't think it said put to the question. But regardless, the point is, if Egwene can prove her innocence, she'll be free. Now, maybe she can't it prove her innocence. A. She's a witch! <laughs> but the way Bornhold says it, you get the idea. He means it with some integrity. That if she's legit, she'll be okay. To the best of his ability, that's what would happen. But Perrin, yeah, he's a goner. Perrin's gonna die. Most likely. So with that cliffhanger, dun, we've dun, covered dun. enough to stop for this week. We'll leave Perrin and Egwene there for now, in the clutches of the White Cloaks. Do they live? Do they die? If you've read the book, you probably know already. Next week, we will return to Matt, Rand, and Tom to see what's going on with them after they escaped Shadow Logoth and got on to the, the spray sailing down the river. We'll see where they went on to. If you are reading along and want to be prepared for what we cover next week, make sure you have read or reviewed chapters 24, 26, and then jumped over to 31 through 34. So we're going to cover six chapters in that next section. And with that, I would again invite and encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, 
rate and review us anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. If you have anything that you want to share with us or ask questions or give suggestions, use our email, fantasyfortheages at gmail.com. And if you just want to get in touch with us, hit us up on any of our social medias, be it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or even come talk to us on Discord. It's a growing little family. Absolutely. Again, links to all of these ways that you can connect with all our social media are in the show notes. And we invite you to become patrons. Uh, Join our Patreon group. Uh, The link to our Patreon page is there as well. Just uh, a little bit of support from you says, Attaboy, we like you guys. Keep (laughs) up the show. But it also can earn you some benefits, like being able to join us live in our recordings and participate with us in uh, some enhanced ways as part of our podcast. And with that, we'll talk to you next time.